you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Last week was like drinking a cup of cold water. It was, it was refreshing, right? We learned about quieting our souls, being silent before the Lord, lying down, in the dust, praying to Him, giving, giving, giving it all to Him, quieting ourselves down, and we learned about God's heart. It's very explicit. God's heart does what? It does not afflict, and it does not grieve the children of men. In other words, what the author is saying is, it is not God's desire for His own people to suffer, to be afflicted, and He does not grieve them. But instead, He uses discipline to change them. To show them a clearer picture of the brokenness of the world and how He's going to fix it. But He's compassionate towards them. His mercies are new every day towards them. His grace is never-ending, right? So this is the hope that we find. This is kind of the crescendo of Lamentations. I mentioned every chapter is an acrostic. It has 22 verses in every chapter for all the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But when you get to chapter 3, it's triple the amount. Because chapter 3 is saying, here's who God is. And so now we're kind of coming off of that hill and that understanding of who God is and who His heart is back into the acrostic language of this poem to 22 verses again in chapter 4. And so when we know God's heart then, our hearts then, don't turn from Him, but turn towards Him and re- we recall His ways and we begin to not fear God in a judgmental way anymore, but fear God in a holy way, in a revering way, in a loving way. And we know and believe, once we understand God's heart, that God is intimately involved in saving us. He's not distant. When the Bible talks about Jesus sympathizing with us, it's not at a distance, it is near us. God sympathizes and He's involved. This is helpful for us to know because often we get wrapped up in all the wrongs that we've done. Like we we can recall, right? We talked about our memory last week. How our memories are always against us, right? And so often we can just list pages full of things that we've done wrong and how we've messed up everything. And it's often overwhelming to the point where we feel like there's no way out. There's real no hope. And we talked about this some in our community group where we know what God has said, but in the moment we can't get away from our failures. We can't seem to bring it to the streets, if you know what I mean. We struggle that way, and I think because we are conditioned to believe that solutions are really tangibly instantaneous. Like if it doesn't happen now, if the change doesn't happen now, if, it, if it's not here in this moment, then it, maybe it just won't ever happen. We kind of think, we wish that the struggles in life and the afflictions in life happened kind of like in the story of Peter in the garden, right as Jesus was getting arrested. You know that Easter story where the guards come down, they arrest Jesus, Peter gets really frustrated, he pulls out his sword, he starts whack-a-mole and everybody, and he ends up slicing off the ear of a guard. And Jesus rebukes Peter for his sinful actions. 
If you fight by the sword, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, Peter. I have a mission to accomplish. Get out of my way, is essentially what he's saying. And then, so Peter completely messes up, but in that moment, instantaneously, Jesus heals the ear of the soldier. And so that's what we want. That's how we view the Christian life. Like, that's what would help us if Jesus would just, okay, let's fix it right now. But chapter 4 teaches us that that's not exactly how the Christian life goes all the time. It's this chapter helps come into focus, helps us seeing that if we know the heart of God, we then can now have a proper perspective of our suffering and a proper perspective of what God is actually doing. We can see in this chapter that while there is still a mess, that His people are still His people, His chosen people, His set-apart people, His holy people. And yet, they're standing in the midst of all this chaos. So He has not forsaken them. And so I'll make the case that we are, as the people of God, a holy mess. We're a holy mess. And here's what I mean. We have to remember that God has justified us. He has justified us. Meaning, the penalty for all of our sins has been paid perfectly on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago on Golgotha. All of the anger of God that is meant towards us was poured out onto Him before we were even a twinkle in mommy and daddy's eye. All of our sin, the sin that we're committing right now, maybe today, or even tomorrow, all of that has been perfectly paid on the cross. We are now justified before God. No longer do we bear the penalty for our sin. In that same work of Jesus, we are now declared holy. Jesus dies on the cross. He resurrects from the grave. He then takes His righteousness, which is perfect and holy, and imputes it to us. He makes it ours so that forever now we are free from the guilt and the penalty of sin, but now perfectly righteous because our righteousness is His righteousness. And so we're justified because of the cross of Christ. Jerusalem here in Lamentations 4 is kind of in this similar spot, except on the other side of the cross, before Jesus comes onto the scene. They know that they are God's holy people. They know that they are His. They know that justice will be satisfied in the future, just kind of like we know that justice has been satisfied in the past. They know that God is going to act. They know that they are a mess, but at the end of the day, they know that they can operate with real hope. Just like we, on the other side of the cross, can operate with real hope. Does that make sense? And so we are God's people. We are a holy mess. And so let's talk about that in these verses. I'll reference the verses. I won't reread the verses. There's a lot of verses. Verses 1-11 through 11, kind of thumb along as we work through this, we see that we are a scattered holy mess. Immediately right away, the author or Jeremiah talks about the holy stones being scattered. This is reference to Jerusalem, to the temple being destroyed. You're seeing the stones thrown down on the city floor. This place is in complete ruins. A city that was set apart for God, that was deemed 
holy by God, is now completely destroyed. And so the stones really represent the mess that the people of God has made. But we must make a, difference, make a distinction here. That though these stones are deemed holy, it's not in the same sense that the people of God are deemed holy. There is no moral quality to the stones that build up the walls or the temple that resides in Jerusalem. They are just stones. So God has another objective here. But you see, you have the physical idea of what is going on here. You can imagine it in your brain. And so now Jerusalem has gone from fine gold to earthen pot vessels. Meaning they have gone from really a people of value, of worth, of influence in society to really something of no value and worth and really fragile and easily to be broken. The world doesn't see them as much of anything anymore. But more than these scattered stones, when you get to verses 3 and 4, you see the cruelty of Jerusalem has become so great that not even the children are fed. They're starving. Mom and dad aren't even taking care of the kids anymore because they're so entrenched, they're so devastated with what's going on, they're just trying to feed themselves. And the author's saying, not even the jackals do something like that. Animals take care of their people better than how you're taking care of your own people. And so then, verses 5-8, through eight, those who were once wealthy or of status in society are now poor, they're hungry, they're suffering, they're dying on the streets. The playing field has been leveled. There is nobody who is on top anymore. Zero people. The wealthy and the poor together are suffering. And so it would have been better, verses 9-11, through 11, that they die from the sword. It would have been better to have been alive in Sodom when God struck Sodom down in a moment and destroyed them all than to have to live through this day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, agonizing pain of hunger, you know, starvation, suffering. It would have been better just for their life to be ended instantly. And you begin to see people in society who are compassionate at one time, these women who are compassionate at one time, they do the unthinkable in verse 10. I won't read it again. The, the Lord has unleashed His fury. He's unleashed His fury on Jerusalem. And so after we get quiet with God, it's then that we're able to properly see the devastation of our brokenness. That's kind of what we're seeing in chapter 4. The author knows God's heart. And now, it's just imagine this author standing, looking at the sitting, city, having a clear evaluation of what is actually happening before him. And so I hope that last week, you guys at some point have been able to take time to just simply quiet your souls. To be silent. To be still before God. And if you have it, you need to ask yourself, how come? I mean, the world is nuts right now. It's chaotic right now. You, there is no rest on the internet. Zero. There's no rest in the workplace. There's no rest anywhere because everything is, is just a big question mark in life. So you should have, we all should have, 
gotten quiet with the Lord at least this last week. We may not have the holy stones lying in ruins around the city, right? There's no, we're not in Jerusalem. There's no temple here, especially on this side of the cross. But the New Testament speaks to us about us being living stones. Living stones being that we are being built into a holy temple of God with Jesus Christ as our cornerstone and as our foundation. And we are being built upon Him. That is what holds us together. Our sin may be causing not holy stones to lie scattered in Jerusalem, but it may, we may be destructive, scattering living stones around us. Living stones may be your spouse, your children, people in your church, ultimately people within the covenant family of God. Our actions, our, our brokenness, everything is just really devastating what is holy around us. And so we become really more, instead of builders, we become more like wrecking balls, and so our, our pride and our ego has caused for us to just destroy people for whom Christ has died. So, I know for me, being quiet has revealed that about myself. I I am seeing, especially in the last few days, how my own anger, my own tension, and the the, the unrest in my soul is causing me to come against living stones. But what about you? What does it look like, instead of tearing down, for you to build up the holy living stones on Christ, the cornerstone? And keep in mind what I'm saying. I'm not saying you fix them. You can't fix anybody. But you build them up upon the one who can. And look, don't downplay the devastation of your sin. I know we do that often. Well, it's not that bad. It's, I mean, it's just a little sin. Man, if any if sin should teach us anything, it is anything but light. It is anything but little. I mean, chapter 4 is showing us what happens when we sin. And like the biggest, truest expression of it. And we may actually kind of come to this text going, man, I would never do anything like that. I would never be like those compassionate women. I would never be like those priests. I would never be like any of those people. I would always feed my kids first before feeding myself. And if we think that we're above all of this, I mean, just watch the evening news. Look how, look how out of control we are becoming. And I'm not picking on any one group of people. I'm saying all of us. When sin occurs, it is devastating and has devastating blows and devastating effects and devastating impacts within our family, within our church, within our nation, at every level. And we need to do this. We need to not play lightly with our sin or pretend like it's not devastating because at the end of the day, we need to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. If we have a proper perspective of God's heart, then we will have a proper perspective of brokenness. The author can stand there and look back at the devastation with proper lens, with proper understanding. So when you see brokenness in your life or in the world, whatever level you want to see this brokenness, 
Through which lens are you seeing that brokenness? Through which lens? Do you see the brokenness around you with no hope ahead? Or do you see it in the sense of there's only hope in God alone? This is devastating in chapter 4, but it points towards a hope. Is how you're seeing life pointing towards hope, or is it only devastation? And I think I need to also just remind us, as we're dealing with this, you and I are not at war with one another. We're not at war with one another. Sometimes we become like the compassionate mothers of verse 10, and we are willing to devour one another for our own self-interest, for our own selfish gain. We'll feed our own bellies, and we'll do it at the expense of you. So who is it, or what is it, that you might be putting on the altar of your pride and ego, trying to devour? Like, think about every time you get on social media, or think about every interaction you have, or that family member that you're like, okay, next time, I'm just going to let them have it. You're like, you're already building up anticipation. You're going to war with flesh and blood. So consider these times. Election year is always contentious every time. You have racial tensions. We have COVID-19. All of us are feeling it deeply. Even now, just kids starting school. Even if you don't have kids in school, you're like, man, I feel heavy about kids being in school right now. It is so heavy. And so when all these broken things start to happen around us or the heaviness happens around us, what we start to see surface and immersion within us is really kind of this monster. This caged monster that we've just been holding in and all of a sudden devastation and brokenness around us has kind of like unlocked the gate, opened it, and then here we actually come. And so kind of out of desperation or fear or anxiety or worry, we begin to just devour one another. Trying to get back on top so that we're not the ones starving. None of us are on top. Not one of us. There's no one immune from the trouble of our world right now. You might be able to survive a little bit longer, but in the end, you will face the destruction as well. None of us are immune. We're facing these troubles at varying degrees. Doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter if you're black, doesn't matter if you're white, doesn't matter if you're young, doesn't matter if you're old. We all are facing a real problem and we need to just simply get to what the problem is and the problem is our sinful hearts. That's the bottom line. Sinful hearts. So Jeremiah is writing this and he sees how they got to this point. The leadership ultimately failed Jerusalem. And led the, led the people to rob their God of the worship that was due His name. And as the leadership led them down this road, they began to grow deeper and deeper uh, in rebellion to their God. And so we see in verses 22, or 12 through 16, a holy mess worship. I'm really not good with these little subtitles, but it's a holy mess worship. 
If you go back to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 6, in verse 14, it talks about this leadership. Here you have priests, you have the, the, the prophets, um, you have all, the elders all mentioned right here. So you have all these different forms of leadership that were put in place by God. Okay, you started to see that after Israel came out of Egypt, God through Moses began to establish all these different positions for the purpose of drawing His people closer to Him. Let me just put it that simply. And so over time, what we're seeing is this leadership has become infected with sin, and instead of bringing their people close to God, if you will, and right worship with God, they began to draw them away. And you see Jeremiah chapter 6, 14 talk about that, that they, the priests, have healed the wound of my people lightly, is what God is saying. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. So the hearts of the people of Israel began to turn from the Lord, and instead of this leadership bringing them back to right worship, they began to deal with it in a light matter. It's not that big of a deal. They were very casual about worshiping God, casual about bringing Israel back to repentance. And in doing so, they actually furthered Israel's relationship with God. When you're talking about a wound or an abscess below the surface, if we just deal with it on a surface level and don't deal with it in a much deeper level, it will lead to infection. Right? You can't just stick a band-aid on an open wound and expect it to be healed. The priests of Jerusalem provided surface-level treatment to a deep wound. The infection eventually reached the heart of the people. And so the actions of the priest, you see in verse 13 of chapter 4, these are the iniquities that he's talking about. What we saw back in Jeremiah, that they were dealing lightly with sin. And so instead of proper worship and proper sacrifice and the proper blood that would lead the people to worship God, the priests then, the, the, the false prophets, the elders, were then shedding the blood of righteous people who were speaking true words. And instead of offering up the blood of sacrifices, they were essentially offering up the blood of the righteous people. And they were so, their hands were so filthy with the blood of the righteous that they became unclean themselves. They became defiled. And as they became defiled, Second Chronicles 36 tells us that the people of Israel sinned to the point where there was no remedy. Second Chronicles 36, 15-16. There was no remedy. It's kind of like the point of no return. How have you, perhaps, wandered from proper worship of God that has led to only light healing for your soul? Jesus' light. <laughs> Look at your life. Look at all your relationships, all the tensions in the world. How might you be engaging those things as a result of your lack of worshiping God? If you're not, let me try to put it this way, if you're not seeking the Lord in true worship, then what makes you think your heart will ever be right towards those around you? Does that make sense? 
If we're not worshiping the Lord properly, we're never going to see real healing for our souls or for the souls of anyone around us. How are we going to lead anybody to Christ if we don't even know how to go to Him? And when wounds aren't dealt with, they lead to infection. And if they're infected, the next option then, the next option is to really cut out the infection, properly clean the wound, and then ultimately nurse it to help. Right? So when it says in Second Chronicles that there was no remedy, it didn't mean like God gave up, there's no way out of this. But for the people of Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, they were at the end of it. There's no way out. They were done. The Lord was going to enact discipline. He was going to temporarily unleash the fury. But there would be hope. So then if the human heart is infected with sin, then the question is, what is the cure? What is the cure? What is it that cuts out the sin of the heart and then makes it clean? Or, who is it that cuts out the sin of the heart and makes it clean? If we turn to anyone or anything other than Jesus to heal the heart, then all we're doing is seeking after a light healing of the soul. It may, it may seem temporary, like it's, oh, it's working for now, but a year, two years, or whatever down the road, it's going to lead to utter devastation. Jesus is the only priest, the only prophet, the only one who has not messed up our worship. He is not. In fact, Jesus is the only priest who has perfectly fixed our worship and He has provided genuine healing. Jesus is the great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. He goes before the Father so that we have peace with the Father. But He's also the perfect sacrifice with the perfect blood. So the imagery is that Jesus is not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice and he's the blood. So he's taking his own blood before God the Father and pouring it out on our behalf and he's ushering us into his presence. He is the resurrection and the life. Meaning he applies all of those things to us in the now, giving us life now, a healed life now. Every day the perfect Blood of Christ is being sprinkled upon us. We learn this from 1 Peter 1.1. So then, to whom are you going for healing? And as things continue to press in life, whether it be issues at home, at work, or in society, they will over time and slowly reveal the condition of your heart. So pay attention then the words that you're saying, how you're speaking, the words that you're actually using, how you're feeling, stressed, angry, frustrated, fatigued, all of those signs are possible signs that you are under light healing in your life. And that is ultimately due to improper worship. So how do you... You know, how you come out of this is not by fixing your own heart. You can't fix your own heart. But rather, you focus your heart on the one who can fix it. It's Jesus. You worship Him. You adore Him. You give praise to Him. You lay quiet before Him. You exalt Him. 
And by default, what you find is that he heals you not at a surface level, but he heals you deeply. So church, who are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? And how you answer will reveal then whether you're finding more infection or true healing. So knowing who heals our hearts then reveals more clearly who it is will provide for us an eternal salvation. 17-20, through we have a holy mess salvation. Jeremiah 37 speaks of Jerusalem in this time of about to be taken over, we're seeking help from Egypt. Hey, Egypt, can you come help us against the Babylonians? And Egypt was like, nope. And they fled. They ran out the door. Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem, Judah, was completely defenseless at this point. You think, hey, uh, why don't you ask God to help you? But they had been beyond that point of, you know, they're beyond the point of no return. Here, they're only seeking for help or, uh, from surrounding nations and surrounding powers and forces, thinking that that's what's going to resolve this issue. But then on top of that, on top of that, we hear of these Edomites here in these verses. This ancient brother of Israel, Edom, comes onto the scene and helps Babylon hand in Jerusalem runaways. Like if it's not bad enough that Egypt flees, then in comes this ancient brother of Israel saying, hey, we'll help capture you guys and turn you over to Babylon. This goes back to the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob, later renamed Israel, Esau, the Edomites. Esau, we know this story if we remember, he despised his birthright. He despised it. He despised the promises of God. And so, Jacob ended up taking the blessing. He wanted the blessing. But Esau became furious because even though he despised it, he still wanted the blessing. Right? He wanted the perks of, of the blessing, though he didn't really want to follow in the ways of God. Right? And so out of this, Esau becomes furious against his brother, and he leaves home, and he founds a people called the Edomites. And we begin to see from that point on, because after Jacob, you have the Israelites, and after Esau, you have the Edomites, and now you have Israel and Edom constantly at odds with one another throughout the story of the Old Testament. The first time we see is in Numbers chapter 20. After Israel comes out of Egypt, they need to pass through the land of Edom, and Edom says, nope, if you try, we'll kill you. And so they have to go around. And so Edom would forever be an enemy of Israel. And the minor prophet Obadiah, who was alive during the time of this captivity, during the time of Jeremiah as well, he speaks of Edom explicitly. The book of Obadiah is basically a big, fat, hey, Edom, watch out. That's all that book is. And here's what he has to say in this one-chapter book. On the day that you stood aloof, so Edom is standing aloof, on the day that strangers carried off Israel's wealth and foreigners entered Israel's gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Obadiah is saying, Edom, 
you were just like Babylon. You're equally guilty. And so here's the picture. There was no help for Jerusalem. Not even from their own family would they find help. When you look at the mess around you, who do you believe can do anything about it? Or what do you believe can be done about this mess that's around us? When you look at yourself and you see how broken you are, because we're really good at seeing how messed up we are, what do you believe or who do you believe can deliver you from the eternal wrath of God? Because you and I know we are all sinners. And what happens when everything or everyone that you've put all your hope in suddenly flees from you? Runs from you. Hey, Egypt, where are you going? Hey, Edom, what are you doing? Yeah, and so what happens when those who are supposedly family begin to turn their back on you and make you suffer? I was told just a couple weeks ago from a friend in the faith, he happens to be black, that he was gunning for me, gunning for me, and I didn't even know him. I hadn't known him, but for maybe a couple months to bring his pain to me, a white pastor. Because he just wanted me to feel it for some reason. And so in that moment when he told that to me, I realized I'm not sure which brother I'm dealing with. Am I dealing with a Jacob brother or with an Esau brother here? And so what I realized is that I needed, in that moment, instead of to like, stand up and become defensive, which I didn't. I needed to be, remain focused on the one who's not ashamed to call me brother, Jesus. And I share this with you because I love this person. I'm not going away from this person at all. We're still friends. But what I have to realize is that, and I hope that helps us all realize, is that we can't put our hope in anybody or anything other than Jesus because it's very likely they may abandon us, they may flee from us, they may throw us under the bus, they may actually be after us and we never even realize. But if we're constantly wondering, then we become anxious or worried, we become frazzled, we begin to deal unwisely with things, But instead, we put our hope in Jesus. And when we do that, our hearts begin to be like His, full of compassion and mercy and grace. Because I'll tell you, I've been just like this gentleman, where I've sought somebody out, hoping to just throw them under the bus, or have them feel my pain. Let Let me help you feel what you did to me. But that's not the gospel. Are you looking for government to be your help? Are you looking for your spouse to make you happy? Are you expecting your job to give you the security that you ultimately need in life? Maybe you find yourself in this time more critical of God. You're more critical of His church. You're more critical of His Word. That's what these tough times are beginning to reveal in your own soul. And then chances are you might be looking for help in all the wrong places. You may be just like Jerusalem, seeking 
help from Egypt. We need to reorient to the only one who can deliver us from evil, the only one who can deliver us from ourselves, the only one who can save our souls, save our marriage, save our brokenness, reconcile the races so that we are no longer divided but united in Christ. He is the only one. I think we're spending way too much time looking outside of Jesus for help. We're not turning to Jesus. We're looking outside of Jesus for help. Listen, our nation is tired. Our nation is exhausted, fatigued, sad, full of despair, rage, anger. Because it wants to be saved from itself, but all of its solutions are just failures. If we continue to look to godless answers, we will continue to experience episodes of an infected heart. We will never move towards healing without Christ. And Jesus is our salvation. He is our help. The only help. He is the brother who is for us, not against us. He is the one, as Jude says, who delivered Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jesus is the guarantor of our salvation. By faith in Jesus, we are assured that the peace of the Father, that we have the peace of the Father for us. We are assured that our enemies will be rightly dealt with. And with that sort of assurance, we see that we no longer have the wrath of God pending against us. And so lastly, we see this holy mess wrath. Verses 21 through 22. I've got to work on that. While hostility doesn't remain between God and His people here in these verses, the enmity and hostility remains between Edom and Israel. Jerusalem is just going to always have enemies. And Edom is rejoicing because they made that agreement with Babylon, literally as Jerusalemites would be running or fleeing away, Eden would go out, hunt them down, capture them, and bring them back to Babylon. And in exchange, Babylon would give them a piece of property just south of Jerusalem called Uz, U-Z. And that's what we see here in these verses. But little does Edom know Right? So they're pretty pumped. They're excited. Oh yeah, finally we get a piece of the land that was the blessing meant to our father Esau. So here it is. We'll get it at all costs. But little do they realize that this cup of wrath, they're about to drink it. Jerusalem may be paying now, but that devastation is ending. And guess what? The crosshairs are moving from Jerusalem and they're squaring over against Edom. Obadiah records this unrelenting wrath that will come to, to Edom. In verse 12, he says, But do not... So Edom, you're rejoicing over Jerusalem's capture, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. He's warning them. You jump down to verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. It's not looking good. God is going to deliver His people. 
why do we act like wrath is not going to come? Why do we act like God is not going to deal with things justly? I think it, it hurts sometimes for us to see this seemingly win of evil, this seemingly win, this constant Edom rejoicing over our hurts and sorrows and pains. But instead of being quieted in our souls with God, we end up going crazy. We go nuts. And this is where we become impulsive. We become anxious. We become angry, hostile, bitter, quick to speak, quick to act without thinking. But where we need to be instead is resting in the satisfied justice of God in the cross of Christ. So the next time you and I feel indignation just really kind of boiling in the soul due to brokenness, whether it's in our home or in the world, and we just want to impulsively scream out, maybe we would rather recall how that indignation that is burning within our souls is just a small taste of the indignation that was burning hot against us when we were without Christ. Meaning, we're not so innocent. We're all sinners. And if we think we're something, that God saved us because we're special and something, you're wrong. We are just as wicked as Babylon. We're just as wicked as Edom. But God is gracious. So rest your souls and remember Him. Remember His mercies are new every single morning. God's anger towards you is satisfied in Jesus on the cross. Meaning, God is not angry towards you anymore. He's not wrathful towards you anymore. Even though the author here is being disciplined for their sin, they know they are not eternally condemned. And so the same is with us. We sin, we make a mess of things, we're disciplined for it, but we are not eternally condemned. We're often short-sighted with our afflictions. The afflictions and the grief of our life ought to put into proper focus where we stand with God and where God's enemies stand. And that should get us, give us great hope and great peace. And so we're a holy mess. We're a holy mess. There, there's, not something any, or there's not anything the world can really say. Let me back up. There's something that we can say and believe that the world cannot. We are saved by grace. We are made holy by faith in Jesus. And this side of heaven, yes, we still mess up and sin, but God is gracious and merciful never to put His wrath upon us. His wrath was poured out completely upon His own Son, Jesus, on our behalf. But for those who don't have faith in Jesus the Edomites of this world, wrath is pending and awaiting for them. All injustices this side of heaven will be satisfied. And our lives are not so much going to look like Peter watching Jesus instantly fix our problems right before our eyes. But there, there may be times when God does that miraculously and that will be a grace. But most of our lives will look like what we see here in chapter 4, where we have to have peace and trust in God amidst the tragedy and patiently wait on Him. That's 
the key, is patiently waiting. So remember, yes, we're a mess, but we're a holy mess. He has not forsaken us. God is with us. He's bringing us back home. And so let me wrap up with these words from Obadiah 21, the very last words in the book of Obadiah. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Esau, enjoy the wind while you have it, because I'm taking the mountain back over, and you're going to be right back down. The enemy is going to be completely conquered. Death and Satan thought they had the victory when Jesus was lying in the grave, but quickly would they learn that they would be overthrown, thrown off the mountain, and Jesus' King would rise from the dead to take on His throne. So the Kingdom of God is among us. The King is Jesus. We are citizens of this Kingdom, and this Kingdom of ours will not be shaken, and it will never be taken captive again. This Kingdom is the Lord's. And church, you are His. And there's going to come a day where we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. In that day, we will go really from being just a holy mess to being completely and perfectly just holy. So rejoice, church. The King is here.